Normally the pastor, Father Flores, would have been here to, for this great rite. But he, his flights back into town were canceled due to the weather, so you're stuck with the JV team. <laughs> we're very grateful, very joyful that you're on this journey and the entire community, the entire parish is with you. We heard just now from Samuel a little bit of his origin story, a little bit of his beginnings. And unfortunately, during the Sunday Mass readings, we only catch that little snippet. During the daily Mass, we're reading the entire book of 1 Samuel and the entire book of 2 Samuel. And there we would get his whole story. And also the stories of Saul and David, which come after Samuel. And these three stories are all interconnected. And they all, of course, point to to the Messiah, to Jesus himself. And they set up the gospel that we just heard. And so I'll attempt, I'll attempt to give a, a summary of, the, of those stories and draw out some points for us. Now, here we, we heard the calling of Samuel, but of course, that wasn't the beginning of his story. It began with his conception with his mother, who was barren, and she begged God for a son. And she promised that she would give his, her son back to God, should God grant her a son. And of course, that's not a new story in the, in the scriptures, not, nor is it the last one. We heard the, story, the stories of Sarah, Rebecca, of Rachel, the mother of Samson, Samson and, and then finally in Elizabeth, and in a sense, Mary. Mary wasn't barren, but in the sense, this miraculous birth having been given by Christ, by, by God, by the Father. And so these stories all relate to one another. Mary fulfills the story of Hannah, and Christ is going to fulfill the story of Samuel. When Mary, when Hannah gives birth, she sings this great song of thanksgiving, which echoes very much the song of the Magnificat of the Blessed Mother. But the main theme in that song, the theme that pushes the song forward and the story forward, is God's promise that despite human evil, God is going to deliver a savior. And that savior is going to be a king. God is going to deliver a messianic king. A great program that goes into all these things is Jeff Caven's The Great Bible Story. And it would be great to do that here as a parish. Please don't tell Father Forrest I'm thinking about another program. <laughs> he won't like to hear that. But it's important to know our entire history. This is our history. We, we, we want to know it in order to understand our own selves better and our relationship with God better. Samuel comes about as somebody that, that was raised by God to lead the Israelites. The Israelites are being unified. There there were 12 tribes. Of course, that prefigures the 12 apostles. The 12 tribes are being brought together. Samuel is leading them, and he wins some battles, wins the esteem of the people. But the people see the other nations around them. The Israelites see the other nations around them have kings. And so they ask God for Samuel. We want a king too. And so Samuel goes to the Lord and tells the Lord about this. And the Lord basically says, Samuel, don't feel bad. It's not your, your fault that they want a king. You've been doing a great job. They actually don't know what they're asking when they ask for a king. They don't know what that entails. But okay, they want a king, so I'll give them a king. And so then Saul comes about. And Saul is tall and strong and from a, from a wealthy family. He has all the attributes, all the talents. It seems as if he's going to be the king who fulfills the song of Hannah. But pretty quickly, after winning some battles, he becomes very proud. And he starts to think according to his own thinking and not obeying, obeying God's commands. And so he gets into this battle 
and he's about, they're, they're losing this battle, and he thinks that he can do something that would directly disobey a commandment of God, but he justifies himself thinking that if I do this here, this will win the battle for us, which will be able to unify the kingdom, and so this must be better in the long run. And so he breaks God's commandments. Samuel comes to him and says, what have you done? Samuel still alive, still a prophet. What have you done? Now here's something we want to learn from Samuel. That Samuel, at this point, doesn't repent. He makes all sorts of excuses, of justifications. Oh, here are the circumstances. Here's why I thought this would be better. The kingdom would be carried out if I did this. Samuel, of course, doesn't buy that and says that he has lost God's favor and he will now go into decay. And sure enough, he does. But then Samuel says, not to worry, there will be another king. And this other king will be different from you in this way, where you're focused on building a kingdom here on earth. This new king is going to be a king after God's own heart. And that's, of course, King David. When David is still a youth, Samuel travels to Bethlehem to anoint this king, this future king, this boy, this shepherd boy. And of course, these are all familiar themes to us at this time. By the way, you see our nativity set still up. If yours is still up at home, that's great. You can keep them up until February 2nd. If you brought them down, that's okay. You don't have to confess that. That's okay. <laughs> but so... Sam- Samuel goes and anoints David. God begins to raise David up. David beats Goliath, not because he was stronger, not because he was mightier or more talented or any of these things, but simply because he trusted in God, trusted in God, humbled himself before him, was obedient to God. And this allowed God to carry out his plans, God's plans through David as a youth. David continues to to rise and wins the esteem of the people. And then he's crowned as king. He goes to Jerusalem, conquers Jerusalem, which is, by this point, the tribes have been united in two kingdoms, the northern and the southern, two big territories. Jerusalem is right at the border. And so David sees that as a good opportunity to establish a capital, political capital, right at the center, and that would unify the kingdom. And so he does. So he did, and so the kingdom was unified. But that wasn't enough for David, because he's a man after God's heart. So he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and now establishes Jerusalem as also the religious capital, signifying, I'm not king here. Christ is king. Maybe not Christ yet. God is king. I'm not king. God is king. That's David's message here, bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Now, at this point, something really, tra- something really important happens. And this, this is in the seventh chapter of this of the second book of Samuel. And this is key for the entire biblical narrative and key for our lives as Christians. This is absolutely essential. And this is what happens. At the height of his kingship, at the, heart, at the height of David's kingship, he notices that he himself is living in a house of cedar, whereas the Ark of the Covenant is under a tent. So he thinks, this can't be right. Why am I in the house of cedar and this great throne, whereas God himself is under a tent. So he says, God, I want to build you a house. God, I want to build you a house. And how does God reply? He says, should you, David, build me a house to dwell in? 
It was I who took you from the pasture and from the care of the flock to the commander of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went. I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make you famous like the great ones of the earth. I will give you rest from all your enemies. I will establish a house for you. And there's a play here on the, in words in the Hebrew where when, God, when David says, I want to build you a house, that gets translated as temple. I want to build you a temple, God. And God is saying in return, when he says, I want to build you a house, he says, I'm building you a dynasty which will last forever. And then he continues, I will raise up your heir after you sprung from your loins. This, of course, is going to be Jesus, a descendant of David. And I will make his kingdom firm. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall stand firm forever. Not because you're going to build the kingdom, the temple, the throne. Because I, God, will build it. I will build it for you. You're not going to build me a house, David. You're not going to build me a temple, David. I, God, will build you a dynasty, David. And just to be clear, this isn't, applying this to our lives, this isn't, oh, I was thinking about doing one, building one house for God, and then God shuts that door, and so now he's telling me, oh, go build this other house. No. It's, I, God, will build you, David, a house, and you, all of us, my son, my daughter, I will build you a house. That house that I will build in you will stand firm forever. At this point, it looks like David is the embodiment of Hannah's song. Maybe this is the Messiah that had been promised. Well, not so fast. David turns out to be a sinner, just like the rest of us. And we hear this. Oh, we hear this. David sent an army into battle, but David remained at Jerusalem. David is already no longer going to the front lines. And then it says, Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch, he saw from the roof a woman bathing. What is David doing arising from his couch late one afternoon? We see he sees this woman bathing on the rooftop across the way, commits adultery with her. This leads to the sin of murder of Uriah, her husband, as he tries to cover up what he has done. So there is all this downfall, but it begins very, the scriptures are very clever in just a, a simple suggestion. When David arose from his couch late one afternoon. See, the sin of sloth precedes the sin of lust and the sin of wrath. Then what happens? The prophet Nathan comes to David and confronts him. David, what have you done? And here we see the great difference between Samuel, between Saul, excuse me, that had come just before him, had been the first king, and now David, the second king. What did Samuel do when he was confronted? What did Saul do when he was confronted by the prophet Samuel? He made all sorts of excuses for himself. What did David do when confronted by the prophet Nathan? He repented. God, I'm sorry. No excuses, 
No justifications. No blaming other people. God, I have done this. Because David is a man after God's own heart. This is what that means. This is part of what that means. So now God, so now David repents. We get Psalm 51, which is a, David's great psalm of repentance. God forgives him, of course, but we have the fallout of his sin. His family deteriorates and the kingdom disintegrates once again and becomes divided once again. And this leads to the darkest period of the Israelites' history and the Babylonian exile and the return into quasi-slavery and the Maccabean revolt and finally into the coming of Christ who actually fulfills the Song of Hanum. So what's the overarching message here? Through all of these fallen, broken leaders, kings, prophets, all the rest, God remains faithful. And all of these rises and falls, all of these sins pushes the biblical storyline forward. Oh, in preparation and increasing preparation for the coming of Christ. The book of of 2 Samuel, we just heard the beginning of that today. It concludes with the renewal of the promise that God will do this. God will raise a king who will one day bring God's kingdom and blessing to all the nations. So this reminder again and again, this is going to happen. And Solomon comes next and builds the great temple. Maybe Solomon is him. No, that falls apart. Okay, this was all a thousand years before Christ. We are now 2,000 years after Christ. What is our perspective? All these things had been promised that they would happen. But now we're 2,000 years after it has all happened. St. Augustine put it this way. He who thinks this grand promise was fulfilled in Solomon greatly errs. But we ought, we ought not to be in doubt here or to see the fulfillment of these things saving Christ our Lord. We only see the fulfillment of these things in Christ. And Alphonsus Liguori, 300 years ago, both of these are doctors of the church. Since God knew that man is enticed by favors, he wished to bind him to his love by his gifts, his soul, his memory, intellect, will, body, heaven and earth, etc. He does all this to catch man. Alfonso says. So God has given us all these things to get our attention. But he did not wish to give us only beautiful creatures. The truth is that to win for himself our love, he went so far as to bestow upon us the fullness of himself. The eternal father went so far as to give us his only son. By giving us his son, whom he did not spare, he bestowed on us at once every good. Listen to what he lists here as every good. Grace, love, and heaven. For all these goods are certainly inferior to the Son. Did you catch that? Heaven, even heaven, is inferior to the Son. The Son, Jesus is God himself. Everything is less than God. Everything that is not God, everything that is created is less than God. What is the implication here? For us, we don't look forward to future events. 
oh, things are difficult now. Maybe tomorrow they'll be better. Maybe next week, maybe next month. Things are difficult in my community, in my parish, in my school, in my city, in my state, in my country, in my church. Maybe tomorrow we'll be, they'll be better. Maybe when the next leader comes around, it'll be better. Maybe after I die and go to heaven, things will be better. No, these are, this is all a Jewish perspective. It's basically saying the Messiah is coming. He hasn't yet come. That's not our perspective. We're Christians. The Messiah has already come. The promises have already been fulfilled. God has already built us a dynasty. One final point here. Maybe this raises a, an objection or a question or a concern. Okay, so God has already built me a dynasty. He has given me his son. So what do I do? Do I just sit back and do nothing? Well, of course, we'll be slipping back into the, the sin of David. Rising late at night, late in the afternoon from the couch. No, no. It's a good question, but let's rephrase it. Now that God has given me his son, what do I need to do to receive him? To receive Jesus, to become one with him, to decrease so that he may increase. Well, the first thing is to become Catholic. So good job, candidates and catechumens. You're on the right road. Of course, to obey the commandments. And there's a lot to say here. I won't go into the, the answer of what to do. That'd be a whole other, whole other homily. But this is the approach. This is the direction. Not... God, what do I need to do to build you a house? God, what do I need to do to allow you to build your dynasty in me? The dynasty that will last forever. One simple image is a landing pad of a helicopter coming to land in a landing pad. There's a lot of rubble, a lot of stuff in the way. What can we do to clean that out, to push it out, to clear it away? so that the helicopter can land. If we've been trying to build a house for God, it's time to change course. Let us allow God to build a dynasty in us. And here now we can hear Jesus say, come and see. And we can respond with the psalmist. Here am I, Lord. I come to do your will.